um, in our summer mini-series on prayer, and this is the third one. And so this morning what I want to do is I want to just take you to a little different spot as we start to look at prayer, and we're going to talk about the power of prayer. And, and it's really important for us to get our minds and kind of grasp what this looks like for us. And so one of the most fascinating stories to me about uh, the power of God is found in a historical book of the Bible known as First Kings. You have the historical books back there. First Kings is one of them. And in First Kings, we have a time period in the history of Israel where the leadership, that is the the king and queen of Israel has turned its back, their back on God and they've walked away from God both in practice and in relationship. The problem with it is, is that the king and queen have encouraged and brought along the whole nation to join them in this rebellion against God. And the way that this rebellion looks is that the king and queen, and her name, uh, it's Ahab and Jezebel, they, they've gone and they've started worshiping an idol named Baal. And then they've also got this false god named Asherah. And that's who they're worshiping. They're, they're idols made from the hands of men. And the royal couple got so angry with God that they killed almost all of the prophets that were in the land that, at that time, God's own prophets. There were only a hundred of them left. And you're thinking, a hundred prophets is a lot. Or, you know, but it's not compared to how many were killed. It is just absolutely this crazy time in the nation of Israel. And the whole nation, practically all of them, started worshiping these idols. It was a sin-filled, God-hating time in Israel. But not all despair was, it wasn't all despair. There's this one bright light that God had already placed in the midst of Israel. And his name is Elijah. And he's a prophet of God, and God uses him in a mighty way. And so what happens is, is that the, the, the king and queen have done such horrible things. Matter of fact, Ahab, the Bible tells us, is the most wicked king up to that time. Of all the kings that have ever served, he's the most wicked of all the kings. And, and he, has, he has done the most wicked things he has brought God's anger upon him because he's provoked the Lord more than any other king in the history of Israel. This is a really bad dude. And his wife is even worse than he is. And so we've got this thing going on. And so God is so angry with Ahab and Jezebel that he is going to punish the whole nation. And here's what he says through Elijah, he says, tell Ahab that it is no longer going to rain. There will not be any dew, there will not be any moisture, there won't be any rain until God tells Elijah to say, make it rain again. And so Elijah gave the message to Ahab and Jezebel, and of course, they weren't that happy about it. And sure enough, God dried everything up. No rain for three and a half years, not a drop. It put the country into a severe famine. People were, were just kind of scratching for an existence. And, and as you can imagine, people were just really at their wits' end. But after this three and a half year period, God says to Elijah, 
I want you to go and tell Ahab that he's going to make it rain, but we're going to do something first. We're going to have a little showdown. We're going to have a competition between gods. And so it's going to be um, Team Baal, Baal, Team Baal versus Team Yahweh. Uh, Team Baal has 450 priests that are going to help them. And they also uh, brought in a few other guys to help them from the uh, Temple of Asherah, another 400 priests. And then there's Elijah on Team Yahweh. And they're going to meet at Mount Carmel and they're going to do one thing, each of them, to prove who God is. And they're going to take a bull ox and they're going to slaughter it and then they're going to sacrifice it, put it on the altar and whoever's God burns up the sacrifice, that God is the God of Israel. And the whole nation gathered for this. And, and everybody's going, yep, that sounds right. That's what we should do. We should have this competition to see if it's Yahweh or Baal, who's going to be the God of Israel. And so they get up there. The, the stage is set. They're on this plain on the mountain. And all these priests come up. And, they, and so Elijah lets them go first. And they build their altar. They put the wood on it. They slaughter this ox. And they cut him up and put him on the altar. And then they start their little prayers or whatever they're doing. 450 of them dancing around, moaning and groaning and doing all this nonsense. And they do this from like 6 in the morning until noon. They're just dancing. Well, by that time, Elijah's going like talking a little smack to them. I mean, if you're having a competition, there's got to be a little, a little John going on. And so Elijah's like, hey, maybe your God can't hear. Maybe you need to yell a little bit louder. Maybe, maybe he's taking a nap and needs a, someone to wake him up. Maybe he's got a project going on and, he, and he's got to deal with this project. Maybe he's in the bathroom. So he's really giving them the gears. He says, you guys just need to get after it. So they start yelling louder. They start dancing more and they start to frantic. And you know what they do? They take their, their knives and their swords and they start to cut themselves all over the place because they think, that if they spill some of their blood, that's going to get this false god to answer and bring fire and burn up the sacrifice. And it goes on for a little while longer, and, and they're all wearing white, and they're completely soaked in their own blood now. 850 of these dudes. A mess. And so finally, Elijah's had enough, and he says, all right, you all gather around with me right here, right now. And so all of Israel comes down. And because the altar of God on Mount Carmel had been destroyed by Ahab and Jezebel, they knocked them all down, destroyed them, he reestablished this altar for the namesake of God. And he took stones, and they're probably quite large, heavy, but big enough, you know, small enough for him to carry them, and he took 12 of those, one for each tribe of Israel, and he rebuilt this altar for God. Then he took wood and he stacked on it. Then he took the ox and he slaughtered it and he cut it up and he put it on top of there. Then he dug a trench around the altar, quite wide and quite deep. And he had these guys grab four buckets, not little pails, not one-gallon pails, maybe 30-gallon jars of water, 
that they had to bring up the mountain. And they had four of them, four guys, and they dumped them on there. And they did that three times so that the trench is absolutely got water flowing all around it. The whole thing is just filled with water, water all over the whole thing. And then Elijah does something. Here's what he does. 1 Kings 18, verse 35 through 37. And the water ran down the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, get this, this is what he said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know you, O Lord, our God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Notice what Elijah's prayer isn't. It isn't, hey, God, you've got me kind of backed in a corner. You need to send some fire now. He's not worried about God sending the fire. What he wants is God's name to be great. He's not saying, hey, God, you know what? My reputation is on the line right here, so you need to answer this prayer so that I look good. He's not saying, if, you, you know, if you're going to send some fire to do something on this altar, do you think you can spread it around a little bit and, and burn up all of the uh, false priests from uh, Baal and Asherah? That's not what he prayed. He simply said, God, we want you to show your power so that you turn the hearts back to you, the hearts of Israel back to you. Make your name great. And here's what God did. Look at verses 38 and 39. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offerings and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. We're not talking about people about this size of a room. We're talking about an entire nation. We're talking probably somewhere around 3 million people on their faces before God, all shouting out at the same time, lifting up their voices at the splendor and majesty of God because He just proved to the people who was God. And that's the most amazing thing. It's just like the stones got evaporated by God's fire. Gone, completely gone. Nothing left. The trench is all that's left and the water's gone. Yeah, that would put you on your face. You know it would. You might even have to go and change something afterwards. It's a little bit scary. But here's the rest of the story. Because what happened is, is then all these, these false priests of Baal and Asherah, well, they're going like, Man, we maybe want to get out of here. And Elijah said, don't let them get away. Put the sword to every one of them. So all of Jezebel's priests, 850 of them, dead, killed, done. And then Elijah says, hey, Ahab, 
You might want to have a little bit of your picnic that you brought up here with you. Jezebel didn't show up to this thing. It was just Ahab. You better eat something because you've got to get in your chariot. You're going to have to get home because it is going to rain. And he, and he just called on God and said, bring forth the rain. And did it ever rain? The drought was over. The famine was over because God was great and mighty and powerful and displayed his glory. Now, you might be wondering, what does this story out of the Old Testament have to do with our study on prayer other than the fact that Elijah prayed this prayer and something great happened? Well, I want to bring this to you through teaching in the New Testament. I want to bring this story full circle for you. So if you have your Bibles, now go to James chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 18. But first of all, we're going to start with verses 16 through 18. And here's what James said. He said, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Here it is. The effective prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. Elijah, oh, here he is. He came back. He's been, you know, back in the Old Testament, and now James is making a point and saying, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three and a half years, three years, six months, it did not rain. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Here's where we kind of get off this a little bit, because people read this verse Or they'll quote this verse. Maybe they don't quote it quite right. But the the thing they read into it is that only a righteous person like Elijah has the ability to produce a powerful prayer that will accomplish great things. We take a look at a guy like Elijah and we go like, look at how he prayed and look what God did through him. And and that's, that's what we often think is that we have to have this heart. We have to pray like him. We have to be like a guy like Elijah because after all, that's what James says. But what we do is we miss really what James is telling us. He's saying, and we can't miss the point that James is making, is that Elijah, when he mentioned him, the reason he mentioned him is because he's just an ordinary dude like you and me. He has to strap his sandals on one foot at a time, just like you and me. There is nothing different, that extraordinary about him that places him head and shoulders over us. James' point is that he is an ordinary guy. And, and the way that we deal with this is the way that we understand that he is just like us. Now listen, Elijah had some really cool things happen. Go back and read in 1 Kings if you've not read that. Go back and read it because it'll blow your mind some of the things God did through Elijah. And, and he had these great moments of ministry. And then there were times of depression that took place in his life. Because here's what happens. After, he has, after Elijah has this great ministry time on Mount Carmel where, he helped, where God comes and demonstrates his power as to who he is and the greatness of his name, and he brings you know, Israel back to wanting to worship God, he brings water to water the earth, all this is going great. Then Ahab goes back down to the castle and says to Jezebel, Hey, baby, you know what Elijah did? He killed all your, all your priests. And she gets so mad, she sends a messenger to, to Elijah and says, If by this time tomorrow you're not dead, may it happen to me what happened to my priests. What does Elijah do? 
I mean, here's a guy that just called down fire, asked God to bring fire down, and it absolutely licked up everything and, and destroyed it all and nothing left. And he brought rain. He prayed and it rained like crazy. So what does Elijah do? Because he's a great man of God. He turns tail and runs like a coward. Well, I guess that's what you do when you've got a mad woman after you. You know, not long ago, this is the way things work in my house. I just want you to know. Totally different. In our house, not long ago, I had my wife down on her knees. You know what she said? She said, it's okay, honey, you can come out from under the bed now. (laughs) Amen, fellas? There you go. And Father's Day is coming, just keep that in mind. So, poor Elijah, he's had this magnificent time of ministry, literally, on the mountaintop. And then Jezebel is coming after him, and he goes into the valley, he goes into depression. Now listen, that's not abnormal. I want you to know that. If you're involved with ministry and you're operating at a ministry level up here, you cannot maintain that level of ministry all the time. There's a point because Newton's law is still in effect. For every action, there's an opposite and equal reaction. That's true in the spiritual realm. When you're ministering up here, you are going to drop down to here. And it's okay Because if you go ahead and read the rest of of what happened there with Elijah, you're going to see God's formula for how to deal with what I call natural depression. It's this thing, we all get depressed once in a while. We all go through it. Jesus got depressed, for crying out loud. So if you get a little depressed, don't beat yourself up and go like, man, I'm such a loser, I just feel kind of depressed. Just follow what the Scripture tells you. You guys are going, just tell me what it says. I'm not going to do that. You do your own work. I had to find this out on my own. You do too. There are no free tickets around here, baby. I'm telling you. Here's what, here's what happens in our lives. Because what's happened in our world is we've had a reset, as I can best describe it in our lives. Because the way that God created us is not the way we function. The way God created Adam and Eve in all of their perfectness, in all of their stuff, to worship God, to have this communion with God, to have this interaction with God all the time, to live in harmony with God perfectly all the time, and their, ten- their attention was focused on God. All that took place, and then sin came in, and it absolutely destroyed and changed everything. And so we've been, by our sin, we've been rewired. Not original wiring, rewiring. And what it does, that rewiring, instead of helping, creating in us a desire to worship God and to focus our attention on God, now what that rewiring does is it focuses its attention on us. We become navel gazers because it's all about us. And that even becomes evident in our prayer because we have this bent toward believing that every result is born from a method that we create in order for our prayers to be answered. So if if something's working for somebody else in prayer, we want to know what they were doing in order to get their prayers answered because that method that worked for them has to work for me. 
Now, there are some methods that work in, in things. Uh, you know, if you do this and this, this is what's going to happen. Let, let me just give you a really good example. Here's what God says. If you honor and you obey your parents, you will live a long life. That's the method that you follow for a long life. And that's true about that. If you do those things, God says you will live a long life. But that doesn't necessarily work with prayer. That's not the way it is with prayer. And so we get this thing in our minds. We've developed the assumption that if we can just strip it all down to a reproducible process to put into action, then the results will multiply my prayer life and things are going to happen. And, and that, I hate to tell you, is not the vision that James gave for us out of his writing. The main ingredient in effective prayer is emphatically not us. Many of us find James 16 to be a familiar verse. The effective prayer of a righteous person has great power. It's commonly understood to be something like this. Be righteous and your prayers will work. How many times do we keep going like, I'm not good enough, that's why my prayers aren't being answered. I'm missing something in my life. Something's not going right. I've, I've failed God and somehow I haven't done the right thing. I'm not saying the right words. I don't have the right formula. I'm not getting the, you know, to the place where God can really hear my voice. I'm not reading the Bible enough. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. We get into this whole thing and it becomes about us instead of about God. And so what happens when we think that way is, is that it, it's a, that's the watered down or skimmed milk version of this verse. And that's what happens when we fly by the text without investigating things. Our broken bent is to make the burden of this passage something to do with us. We simply settle to think that if we want our prayers to be effective, we need to be righteous. Now, if you take a look at the context surrounding James 5.16, James' whole point is that prayer is effective. Not us. Prayer is effective. Just take a look at verses 13 through 15. Here's what he says. If anyone among you is suffering, hmm, let him pray. If anyone among you is cheerful, well, then go ahead and sing cheer. You know, praises. Is anyone among you? Oh, let them call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil and in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. What's that all about? It's all about prayer. Prayer is effective. Prayer is effective for when you're sick. Prayer is effective when you're down. Prayer is effective for when you need God to do something in your life. Prayer is effective for forgiving sins. Prayer is effective. It's not the righteousness that we're looking for. And that's why at the beginning of verse 16, you go from 15 to where it talks about all those things, how effective prayer is. And then at the beginning of verse 16, it says, because prayer is effective, here's what he says. Therefore, because prayer is effective, therefore, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. 
And then on the heels of that, to make it even clearer, James says, the effective prayer of a righteous person has great power. That line is the second portion in a double dose of support for our praying. James' point is to repeat his theme uh, to pray because prayer is what is effective. His concern is not how prayer is made effective, but his prayer is that prayer is effective. Now, let me go back to our introduction where we were talking about Elijah. Because here, James says that Elijah was a man with a nature like like ours. He was just a man. He was just like us. He did everything we do. He was nothing different than us. God didn't make him any differently than he made any of us. He has the same nature. He prayed fervently and God heard. The point is not that we should be the that we be righteous at the extraordinary level of an Elijah, but that he was normal like you and me. James doesn't say for us to be like Elijah for our prayers to be answered, but that Elijah was like us and his prayers were answered. Therefore, pray. Now, don't miss the main point that he's talking about here. Prayer's effective. So, here's where I really want you to, if you don't write anything else down, if you've been daydreaming and you've been sleeping up to this point, wake up for this, then go back to sleep. Prayer is effective not because of great men who pray, but because of a great God who graciously hears his people. We pray as ordinary people who have an extraordinary God. That's what made Elijah great. It wasn't himself. It was his God who was great. We need to make sure that our prayers are in line with God's will. I mean, that's what Elijah was doing. Even in the Old Testament, he wanted to make sure he was lined up with what God was telling him. And so he had an ear that was attentive to hear what God had to say. And he did only what God told him to do. He didn't go out on his own and do his own thing. He only did what he did because God told him to. And we see that also in 1 John 5. And it says this, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Praying in accordance with God's will is essentially praying in harmony with what he would want. And we can see that see God's revealed will, will through Scripture. You want to know what God's will is for your life? You want to know what God's will is for this church? You want to know what God's will is for Jesus? Read the Bible. You will find out what it has to say. You have to pay attention and you have to get the author of the Bible involved in your, your time of reading. Don't just pick up the Bible and do the old trick of doing this, kind of going like, all right, I need to spend a couple minutes with Jesus today, so. Huh. I shall dwell in the house of the Lord. I don't want to go to church forever. But that's what happens. We don't spend time. We don't know God's, what God's will is for us. The other thing is, is that sometimes prayer is just plain old difficult. We don't know what to pray for. Have you ever felt like, <laughs> man, I'm telling you, this, this happens to me quite often. I start to go into my prayer time, and it's like somebody just erased the board. There ain't nothing there. I'm looking at it, and I'm going like. Or it's like math to me. Math never made sense to me. 
Not until I started building, and then I thought I should have paid more attention in geometry. Um, but what happens is we get this blank look on our faces, this blank slate. We're like, I don't even know what to pray right now. I just, I feel weak in my mind. I don't know what to pray. Well, Paul must have had the same experience, the Apostle Paul, because in his letter to the Roman church, chapter 8, he says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because, get it right here, here it is, the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And he's not going to intercede on your behalf according to your will, but only according to the will of God. So sometimes you're going like, man, how come God's not following my will here? How come God isn't answering my prayer and what I want? And I'm going to tell you right now that probably a good chance is that you're outside the will of God and what you're wanting God to do for you. The worst thing you could ever ask God to do is to make you rich. Two things. Number one, he ain't going to do it. God will never make you rich. Number two, he knows our hearts and how easily we're tricked into worshiping money. And he's going like, I'm not going to put that devil in your pocket. No. I'll tell you what he will do, though. If you say, God, I want to be prosperous in what I do, and so help me as I work to work for you so that every penny I make, I know that I have earned for your glory. God's going to come alongside you and go like, yeah, I can help you in that. I can help you in that. Now, am I saying it's wrong to be wealthy? No, God has given some guys the ability. I've got a friend. It's just like he turns around and goes like, hey, I think we should do this, and boom, he's, he's like making money. But the other thing about it is he's going like, wow, God really blessed me. I am going to bless this person and the church and missions. And you go like, wow, I'd like to be that guy for a little bit, God. And God says, no, you wouldn't. So the Spirit intercedes for us. We also need to make sure that we have no unconfessed sin in our hearts when we pray. This would be certainly kind of like an obstacle to seeing effective prayer take place. Matter of fact, in Isaiah 59, Isaiah said this, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ear dull, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so here it is, so that he does not hear. I can already hear some complaints. Somebody's going to go like, well, Pastor Ken, you're talking about the old covenant. We don't live under the old covenant. We live under the new covenant. We live under grace now. So when I pray, God has to hear me. Well, if that's true, then why in the world would John, in his first letter to the church, say this? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, what's true in the old covenant 
still transfers to the new covenant. You cannot dismiss the old covenant teaching. It's still there. God still wants you to adhere to what he's telling you to do. He wants you to pay attention. If you spend all your time reading in the New Testament and you never spend any time in the Old Testament, you're going to have a warped view of God because you will not fully understand the New Testament until you've spent some time reading in the Old Testament. Another barrier to effective communication with God is praying with selfish desires and wrong motives. James, friend of John, he wrote this, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on yourselves. So what happens is we've got these things that, that, that become kind of roadblocks in our ability to have an effective prayer. It's, it's, we have a great God, but if you've got sin in your life, that's hindering you from, from this relationship that God's calling you to, you need to confess that. If you've got, you know, um, you're asking for the wrong things, God's going to go like, I'll give you an answer, but you're not going to like it. No. One of the things that, that you learn when you read through the, the Gospels and you look at Jesus' life is Jesus in his humanity, was just like us. When he got worn out, when the the pressures of ministry overwhelmed him, when he got beat up by the the Sadducees and Pharisees, when, when he was spent after doing a day's worth or two days' worth of ministry just just giving everything he got from it, he needed to retank. He needed to get himself built back up. He needed to recharge his batteries. And so he would go and spend time with his heavenly father. And the life of Christ is intended to give us examples we can follow and learn from. So even though he was God incarnate, Jesus didn't draw on his superpowers as the son of God when it came to facing life's challenges. Instead, when he was exhausted or burdened or in need of a time of spiritual refreshment, he would Flip away to pray. He would go to a lonely place or a quiet place, plugging into the power, awareness, and purpose that can only come and be found in God's presence. So if you're wondering why you're always tired after doing ministry, if you're wondering why you've never got a bounce back in your step, if you're wondering why it is that you just seem exhausted all the time, if it seems like you just can't pray because you're too exhausted to even pray, you're just worn out, it's because you haven't plugged into your source of strength. Because in our weakness, God will demonstrate his strength. But we need to be plugged in. And so prayer is one of those places that's most powerful weapon. God, Jesus used it in his own thing. When Jesus went into the wilderness, he used God's word to fortify what he was doing. Satan came and tempted him. And he never, he never combated Satan except by the word of God. And that's what he'd say. The word of God says. The word of God says. The word of God says. He did it 30 times in his fight against the enemy when he was at his weakest moment. God sustained him through the word. Here's the other thing is that when Jesus prayed his prayers, the disciples were watching him and they were like amazed 
Because he prayed with such power and authority, he prayed as though he had God's ear and God was paying attention to him. They had never seen anything like that. Matter of fact, what they did is they had the prayers of the Torah down really well. The Torah is is the Old Testament. And what they had is they had these prayers that they would just recite. It was kind of a rote thing. They, you know, it's kind of like... um, Lay me down, now I lay me down to sleep, blah, blah, blah. It's one of those things you teach your little kids, and they just pray it, but they don't really know who they're praying to, and they've not put any thought into it. And that's what the disciples knew. And so when the disciples saw Jesus, they did, and it's recorded in Matthew 6, they didn't say to Jesus, hey, Jesus, teach us another prayer. They said, teach us to pray. Meaning, teach us to pray with authority and power like you do. Because what, what's going on over here, that ain't happening with us. But what you're doing, we want to know how you do that. So teach us how. Now, what Jesus did is he gave them what we call the Lord's Prayer. And it's a model for prayer. It's not one that you're supposed to just repeat just for the sake of repeating it. What there is is there's a whole layer of stuff in there. And we'll get at this at another time. Um, but the Lord's Prayer is laid out in such a way that it's not something we just go like, okay, so I just need to pray this, 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 and this, and all this stuff is going to happen. That's not what Jesus' intent was behind the prayer, and we'll explore that at another day. But here's what we, we learn is that having an effective and powerful prayer life starts with an extraordinary God. Now, What I want to do in the few minutes I have remaining is I want to help you. I want to give you eight keys to help develop a more powerful life, uh, prayer life for you. And so the first one is, number one, and these aren't going to be on the screen, so you actually have to do something or be like Jill and take a picture of it. No, there's no picture. Oh, sorry, Jill. You have to type it in. All right. Number one, know to whom you're praying. You're going, well, don't we just pray to God? Well, okay, but you have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So who are you praying to? When Jesus gave his model of prayer, he started his prayer off by our Father, which was totally different than anything else they'd ever heard because you never called God, Yahweh, Father. He, his name was too holy. But Jesus brought it into a personal relationship and said, Our Father. And so you pray to you start your prayer, you go to the top, the Father. You know, if you need something out of my house, you want to borrow something, don't go ask Carissa. Because she won't know where it is anyway. You ask Dad. He'll tell you. And so that's where Jesus started. But then there's also, you have the Son and the Holy Spirit. And Jesus is our friend. He's the friend of sinners. He's also our Savior. And when we're in a time of need and we need help, that's who we call out to. Jesus, save me. But then there are times when we need to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to empower us to do the task that God the Father has given us to do. So you need to know who you're praying. And when you do that, when you put those things into order and you start with the Father and you come to Jesus and you incorporate the Holy Spirit in that process, you will have a much clearer picture of how you should pray as you go through it. Number two is ask for forgiveness. The gift of repentance seems to to really be missing in a lot of what we do. We just come to God and we have, we just think that we just need to get this thing done so I can move on with life. And a lot of times what our prayers do is they take off like this. They go, and they don't go anywhere. 
Sometimes your prayers can't get past the ceiling of your house. And the reason is, is that there is something interfering in your relationship with the Father. And you need to come to the point where you come and you confess and you repent. And then you see, you need to take inventory before you really get into it. You address God. You take inventory of your life. You ask God to, to reveal any wicked way in your heart and see what he does and then confess that to him. The third thing is, we've already talked this, about this briefly, but it's ask for God's will. You remember when Jesus was just at the, at the brink of being crucified, he's in the garden and he's praying, and he says, Father, if you're, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. So if Jesus is asking for the will of God to be done in his prayers, it would make sense that we would follow suit and ask for God's will to be done over anything else we ask for. The, third, the fourth thing is say what you need. Don't beat around the bush. Just come and say it straight up to God. God, I need help. God, I need grace. God, I need forgiveness. God, I need your mercy so I can give mercy to somebody else. God, teach me how to forgive. Just come and say exactly what you want. Because Jesus said this, until now you have asked Nothing in my name asking you will receive it that your joy may be complete. And so when you're asking, you ask in Jesus' name. There is power in the name of Jesus. The fifth thing is you want to do is you want to thank him. A heart filled with praise. I think that praise opens the gates to heaven. And a heart filled with thanksgiving, it's like us with our kids. When we do something really awesome for our kids, it's a little discouraging when they run off and they do all their stuff and at the end of the day, we did all this magnificent stuff for them and they don't take the time to recognize to us and go like, hey mom, dad, that was really great, thanks. We go, yep, it was, you're welcome. God's the same way. At some point, we need to turn to our father and go, hey, dad, thank you. He loves hearing that from us. Number six, pray with a friend. It's good. You have to develop a prayer life of your own, but you also need to develop a prayer life with somebody else. Find a prayer partner or partners. Oh, have I ever mentioned to you before that on Mondays at 4 o'clock, the women have a prayer time right back here at the back? If you're a woman and you're looking for someone to pray with, come and pray with the women. If you're a man, don't show up. Crawl under the bed. Find someone to pray with. Oh, Tuesday at noon, if you're a guy and you just got out from underneath the bed, come to the prayer time at noon and pray with us because we'll pray with you. Oh, by the way, did I mention that there's going to be a Saturday when we're all going to gather, as many of you that can gather together here at, at this right here in this room on a Saturday night at 7 o'clock and we're going to spend however much time God leads us to pray? Did I tell you that before? Okay, well, I'm telling you now. So it's going to be June 23rd, 7 p.m. That's a Saturday night. Come here. We'll gather up. I don't even know how long we're going to pray. We might pray for 15 minutes. We might pray for an hour. Who knows? Maybe God will intervene and we'll pray until the morning dawns and then I'll preach for five minutes because that's all it would take. Who said woohoo? I recognize that voice. That was a Canadian woohoo. Oh, my. Find someone to pray with. 
Pray the Word. I said this before. Jesus prayed the Word. There's more power in praying God's Word than there is praying your own Word. Number eight, memorize Scripture. Psalmist said, I'm going to hide God's Word in my heart so that I won't sin against Him. You hide God's Word. All of a sudden, when you don't know what to pray, all of a sudden, God's Word comes streaming right back into your mind, and you're starting to pray God's Word, and you're like, man, where did that come from? I can't believe I just prayed that. I can't believe how many times in the, in the last number of years as I've been in my prayer time that God's word has flooded my mind and that's what I start to pray and it just takes me to a whole new level. So the most, here I want to give you, this isn't number nine because I said I was going to give you eight, but I want to give you a really strong key to having a vibrant prayer life and to understand our spiritual authority in Christ as explained in scripture. And the only way to do that and be intimately familiar with the Bible and to take a few minutes every day to be in the Word and strengthen it is through the power of the Holy Spirit as you enter into prayer. Because I firmly believe that we, at any time we begin to pray, in order to have a really effective, powerful prayer time is when we take these eight keys, but we start it by asking the Holy Spirit to guide us in our prayer time. I don't know if you've ever done that. We started doing that in my small group. What we do is kind of like what we did at the beginning of this service where we got our hearts quiet before God. Then we turn our ears towards the Holy Spirit and we inwardly we're saying, Spirit, tell me what you want me to pray. And I'm going to tell you that sometimes in our small group, it's dead silent for five minutes. Nobody's saying anything because we're all listening to what the Spirit wants to say. And then all of a sudden, one person starts to pray this over here. And the next thing you know, it pops up over here. And they're praying something in conjunction with that because the Holy Spirit gave them a word that they're supposed to pray about. And then it just keeps going and going and going and going. And I will tell you that our prayer times have been much deeper, much more meaningful, much more powerful since we got away from putting a list together and just asking the Spirit of God what He wants us to pray. Ephesians 6 says, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which, you can, which can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Here it is. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. So the focus that I want you to walk away from today is in order to have an effective prayer life, you have to pray. In order to have a powerful prayer life, you need to understand that the only person that's going to make your prayer life powerful is a powerful God. We are ordinary people praying to an extraordinary God who does great things when his people get on their knees and lift up holy hands in prayer to him. God loves to hear from you, so make it a habit to spend time with your heavenly Father. Amen? Our Father, we thank you that you turn your voice, your ear towards us. When we lift our voices up, when we call for help, when we call out on your name, whatever it is we do, when we, when we enter back into that conversation that you've called us to, your name will be great. You will be praised and your splendor will be made known to those around us. I pray, Father, that you would impart into each one of us a strong desire to spend more time in communion and communication with you, learning how to listen to your voice, coming and bringing our supplication and requests to you, bringing times where we're having praise and praising your name, times when we are confessing our sin. 
we thank you that you're extraordinary, even though we're ordinary, and you will do things through ordinary people. Encourage our hearts today with these words we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.